The subject matter before us, brothers and sisters, um, as we typically do, we note certain things in scriptures about education and the word. And Peter, in his second epistle, by divine inspiration, states that there are certain things contained in the apostolic writings, which are hard to be understood, and they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. It's not that they're not quoting scripture. It's that they're resting it or misrepresenting what the scriptures say in any particular detail. It's something we're always to be cautioned about. The subject matter before us today is actually one of those. And it's because of the humanistic Christian world that has greatly misrepresented so many things in the Bible. that Some of those we've avoided. And example being... Uh, the Trinity, which we know is incorrect, we're almost hesitant to talk about the unity that exists between the Father and the Son in a separable unity. Jesus died for our sins. It's a direct quote from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, which, by the way, the context is according to the Scriptures. So you had to know the Old Testament Scriptures, knowing that that is a, the process of how he died for our sins for the benefit of not as a substitute, but for the benefit of, that's a process covering the entire scriptures. But because it's so misrepresented, we often don't even use that sort of language. Um, it's, a, it's a matter of rightly dividing the word of truth. And oftentimes that is not the case with certain statements of the Bible. And that's what we'll talk about, God willing, today in the subject matter of the cherubim. You'll see there, and we just had read for us, the unity that exists between the cherubim and s is not needed i am is plural already in the hebrew it was a beaten work out of the two ends of the mercy seat and the mercy seat and the cherubim were of one and those wings that were set on high verse 20 there covering the mercy seat and the faces of those cherubim were to look one toward another and toward the mercy seat, the faces of the cherubim shall be. So it's unifying is the principle that Hebrews chapter two verse says, and certainly the Lord's prayer in Hebrew in John chapter 17, that Christ and his brethren are sanctified to be one with the father. And Hebrews two and 11 says, both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all one. And for that cause, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So there's no question about the mercy seat and the cherubim that they're of one piece, one unified piece. Well, that's important to us because when we get to the subject matter before us today, as I mentioned, it is one of those things that has to do with a principle that is so largely misrepresented by the world at large and oftentimes by the brethren that we avoid it. So the cherubim in this particular context is to be understood as it relates to the mercy seat, which we know, reviewing last week, is a propitiation, and Christ is called the mercy seat. It was extended only for those who confess and repent of sin. The cherubim comes out of this principle. The high priest entered into the most holy only on one day, the Day of Atonement, Christ entering into heaven, 
and the presence of God for us, says Hebrews 9, right off that figure in shadow. And then these cherubim, representing Jew and Gentile, were formed out of that one piece of the mercy seat. And Brother Jeff mentioned this in his prayers. And while it is true that the cherubim, in great detail, are expressive of the saints in the future age in militant manifestation. You get that very largely in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10. But in the context here, before we get there, before we get to Ezekiel chapter 1, and this divine manifestation and judgment, we have to consider the cherubim as they stand related to the mercy seat. And it is very often, brothers and sisters, that the atonement is restricted to a debate that is only concerning the doctrine as it's related to the nature of Christ and how he benefited from his own sacrifice. Of course, that is very vital to understand that. But those are not the only doctrines that are associated with the atonement and necessary for understanding of that doctrine. The cherubim will enlarge our understanding of the atonement. They were beaten of one piece out of the mercy seat which sat above the Ark of the Testimony containing the law. So before we get to Ezekiel and the manifestation of these cherubim, we have to know how they're formed. And as our brother mentioned in his opening prayer, which was filled with scriptural language, the cherubim represent the glorified saints, the vehicles in whom Yahweh rides. And we get that in very simple means all throughout the Psalms, where he dwells between in his throne, the cherubim, it says in Psalm 18 that he rode upon a cherub and he did fly upon the wings of the wind. And it's actually used in the expression, and you have it in your screen before you in 1 Chronicles 28, the chariot of the cherubim. And that's how they're manifested to us in Ezekiel chapter 1, the chariot of the cherubim. And in fact, we get this, Rakab, we get this in Psalm 68, where it's called the chariots of God coming out of Sinai, which, why, by the way, is one of the scriptures why we believe, along with Deuteronomy 33, which is why we believe the judgment will take place there. So these chariots of God are the myriads upon myriads of angels coming from Sinai. And by the way, that word angels here, and it might be good to mark in your spare time, we'll send the notes out later, is very significant. It's only translated in this place. It's not the typical word angels. And in fact, this Hebrew word is only used in this place. And it literally means changed ones. It comes from a root meaning to change. Again, they're coming from Sinai. This 10,000 upon 10,000 of saints, that are the chariots of Elohim, the cherubim. And it represents the glorified saints, those who have been blessed to be glorified with immortality and divine nature at the judgment seat. So that's some of the language we get there. Again, remember this word angels is totally different here than it appears anywhere else in Old Testament scriptures, which I believe is the word malach. It is the word here that means changed ones, totally different Hebrew word. So these changed ones, remember the law of Moses and the law of faith. And this is what we dealt with last week, that the law could not redeem manifesting sin. It was impossible to obey it all. It condemned unrighteousness. It was a schoolmaster until Christ. We needed redemption from that law. And in fact, when it came to that law, 
Christ elevated the spirit of the law and gave it its true value. And he taught that justification was by raising the conscience of sin and that acknowledgement of sin is needed for forgiveness. The understanding of law and then the mercy seat. And it's out of this principle that the cherubim are formed. Now notice this, brothers and sisters. This is one of the subjects as brethren in Christ that is sometimes misrepresented in the brotherhood. And at least for me, probably the first 10 years I was in the truth, I avoided it altogether because I didn't fully understand it. This whole concept of the cherubim coming out of the mercy seat has everything to do with the atonement and the mercy provided by Yahweh. And it's used in that exact context of why these two cherubim were to look one toward another and toward the mercy seat where the faces of the cherubim shall be. This is what we read last week in part of the context. Then he mentioned he is an advocate with the Father, that is Jesus Christ, who is the mercy seat for our sins, not for ours only, but cherubim, plural. Whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. It's not just the mercy seat. It's the cherubim that come out of the mercy seat. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself to walk as he walked. Brethren, notice the context. I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment with new meaning. He that loves his brother abideth in the light, and there is no occasion of stumbling in him. He that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth because that darkness has blinded his eyes. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So in the context between verse 1, where he's a propitiation and a mercy seat for our sins, and the last part of this quote, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, is the body of the cherubim and how we have to love our brethren. The world and the humanistic Christian world make such a mockery of that doctrine, number one, as if it's easy. All you have to do is love your brethren, love your neighbor. Well, if it was that easy, then why is it such a remarkable thing that only Christ was able to do it and manifest it? That's number one. And number two is, it's the only doctrine that matters. As long as you love your brethren, it doesn't really matter all the other commandments. And that sort of thinking has absolutely seeped into the brotherhood. And there are many things both in the context of fellowship, which really is just socializing. It sometimes can be a socializing around a good time in the world or a party that's called fellowship in the truth. And that's called love of the brethren. And that is not the accurate context of it. Love of the brethren is hard. It's as hard to do as what Christ did. 
There's a reason it is beaten out of one piece of purified gold out of the mercy seat. It is very hard to manifest. Here it is again, brethren, what we quoted last week. Let us love one another because love is divinely taught. Everyone that's loved is born of God. He that loveth not, he's not of God. The deity is love. And you know that's just not an emotional thing. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, in that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. He again, herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a mercy seat for our sins. And if God provided a mercy seat for our sins, this is a terrible rendering in the King James, we ought also to love one another. And that sounds like it's a suggestion. You know, we really should do it. The Greek is we're under obligation. We owe it to love our brethren. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, what is the purpose of the tabernacle? Where did Yahweh dwell? Where was his throne? It was between the cherubim. If we love one another, the deity dwelleth in us. And his love is perfected in us. That is not an easy thing to do. It is certainly not what is represented by the Christian world and is so often talked about in the brotherhood. This is accomplished when Christ's brethren display the same love and understanding the atonement that they know is represented in that mercy seat. Acknowledgement and repentance of sin to find mercy is not enough. We have to live the atonement. We have to demonstrate our understanding of the atonement and what was done for us by conveying love to our brethren. The conveying of our love towards our brethren is not so much about them. Our sacrificial love, agape, towards our brethren is not so much about them. It is about ourselves and what we understand the atonement and what it has done on our behalf. Again, as our brother said in his opening prayer, the mercy and how Yahweh has not dealt with us according to our iniquities. So when we have to display love of our brethren and toward our brethren, brothers and sisters, forget about our brethren. In this context, forget about our brethren. It is intended to draw to mind what's been done for us. Look how often I offend Yahweh. It is intended to go full circle so that you remember the propitiation that has been done on your own behalf. That, brothers and sisters, is not what is represented in the Christian world. 
That is not what is represented at large in the brotherhood. We are going to quote direct scriptures, and there are a host of them, that deal with this subject matter. And this came about for me personally, brothers and sisters, in a very, very difficult means. More than 20 years ago, I was very closely associated with brethren who had a very firm understanding of the pioneer brethren. By the way, when I say this, I absolutely am not dismissing and excusing myself. I was very much a part of this thinking. We understood types. We understood the pioneer brethren. We understood the statement of faith. And there was something deeply wrong in the ecclesia. And it was an elder couple, brethren, and I've mentioned them before, I'll mention, Brother David and Sister Christy Perry. I said, what's wrong? Something is missing. This would be a brethren, a couple, that would agree with us doctrinally. You're missing the love of the brethren. It's what's missing. The joy of the truth. You just see if these scriptures stand up to that council of wisdom. The mercy seat in cherubim, and it launched a long study for me. And the cherubim were beaten of one piece of gold. Again, I had the same mindset. No time, nor taste, nor anything for brethren who didn't think after pioneer thinking and firm conservative principles of the truth. The faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat, but also toward one another. Being formed out of this principle of mercy, they had to recognize the Lord's sacrificial work. And now, their grasp of the standard of the atonement and mercy that's been given unto him. God requires, in this operative work, his servants demonstrate their understanding of that principle. Apart from it, it's really humanism. Regardless how firm we stand, we don't really understand the atonement if we never address this aspect of the truth. This self-sacrificial love, knowing Yahweh has not dealt with us according to our transgression. It is a critical forming of us out of the mercy seat, and it's an understanding of the atonement. Without it, our understanding of the atonement is incomplete. Even brethren debate the subject of the atonement, and boy, did we debate it some 20 years ago. We never debated this aspect. And we were not wrong in the other aspects that we debated. It's to stop it from becoming merely academic. And that is, as I've said before, is almost subtly human salvation. If you remove this aspect, it's human salvation. It's why we assemble together with brethren for whom he died. It is very important to realize the deliberate connection here. It's from between the two cherubim that Yahweh was glorified. And this expression, by the way, brothers and sisters, this is what sent me into an investigation. By the way, Ezekiel chapter 1, I had it marked. Yahweh is the cherubim in militant manifestation. Every comma and period of that chapter. And transferred the notes here to Exodus 25. And I did not have these notes. Not at that time in my life. 
their faces were one toward another, and I started paying attention to what Brother H.V. Uh, Mansfield said in the Expositor. This phrase, one toward another, is dominant in the scriptures. It literally means this one toward another, brother to brother. And I want to show you, brothers and sisters, what I became enlightened by. Look how this, and this, by the way, is according to Strong's. This is the E-sword, just like, so I could take a copy of it and show you on the screen. This word, another, as you have it appear there, numerically corresponding to Strong's, means a brother. This is what and how it appears. Eve, again, bare his brother, Abel. Rebecca had a brother. His name was Laban. And here's what Brother Mansfield says in the Expositor. As the faces of the cherubim look toward one another, so the faces of true Israelites should be turned one toward another to their mutual profit and assistance. Why? Why do you have to put up with brethren that don't care in the truth? The positioning of the faces in that particular speaks of an agreement and fellowship. This idea is further enforced by the Hebrew. This phrase rendered one toward another is derived from brother and literally means a man toward his brother. So brotherly love and fellowship were demonstrated in the positioning of the faces of the cherubim one towards another. I'd gone through the expositor and marked the tabernacle and, kind of, and very blindly missed these notes, brothers and sisters. That phrase one toward another, and you can see it on the screen in front of you. Here's how it appears. One toward another. Genesis 9 and 5, every man's brother, one to another, Genesis 42, one another, Leviticus 25, one over another, don't rule one over another, be joined one to another, Job 41, speak Yahweh, of, thus speaketh Yahweh of hosts, Sabaoth, saying, execute true judgment, show mercy and compassion, exact same praise of the cherubim, every man to his brother. That's the importance of this doctrine. It shook me to my foundations, brothers and sisters. Remember, ignoring sin is not the basis of the mercy seat. I am not saying that love of the brethren at all costs, ignore doctrine. That is not what I'm saying. Ignoring sin was not the basis of the mercy seat. To misrepresent brotherly love by claiming there has been no sin or generalizing, well, we all sin, is not according to the standards of the ark, the mercy seat, and the cherubim coming out of them. Christian humanism taught in the churches suggests it's easy to do, and it's only the thing that matters. Paul addressed this, you'll remember, in handling of sin. In 1 Corinthians 5, he said, remove such a brother for the destruction of flesh until he repents. In 2 Corinthians 2, he comes back to the matter and he says, well, you put him out of fellowship permanently. Don't let him be overcome with sorrow. He's repented, bringing back into fellowship. He didn't ignore the sin and he wasn't without mercy. It's powerful language, brothers and sisters. And as close, and I am no expert in Hebrew and Greek, as closely as I am able, this is how it is laid out perpetually, mutually, as the expression, corresponding expression, appears in the Greek. We're now going to launch in 
successive quotes from the Bible. John 13. Remind yourselves, the Lord is about to sacrifice on behalf of us. If I'm your Lord and Master, and I've washed your feet, wash one another's feet. I've given you an example. You do it to one another. The caravan, looking one to another. John 13. He was troubled in spirit and testified, Verily, verily, I say unto you, One of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one toward another, because they all knew it was within him to do it. Doubting of whom he spake. I want you to stop for a moment, brothers and sisters, and think about something. Three and a half years, these disciples were with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they couldn't tell he was talking about Judas Iscariot. He didn't show an inclination of a little disdain for Judas Iscariot. They looked one to another, doubting who he spake of. He did not treat Judas Iscariot with any different character than he did the other 11. They didn't even know who it was. Can that be said of you and I? Cannot be said of me. Their eyes were open. They knew him and said, one to another. Here's edification. Did not our heart burn within us? John 13, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I've loved you. Love one another. By this, all men know you are my disciples. If you have what love, one to another. Notice the repetition of the phrase, personal sacrifice. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No greater love than a man will lay down his life for his friends. Again, remember the secular Christian world. If it's so easy to do, as they say, and it's all that matters, just love. If it's so easy to do, why is it the greatest expression of love and only one man did it? It's very hard to do, brothers and sisters, which I presume, speaking on behalf of myself, it's why I avoided so many years. Romans 13, oh, no man, anything, love one another, for he that loveth another fulfills the law. Salute one another with a holy kiss. That means affection, filio. We have many members in one body. And being many members of one body, every one members one of another. We have gifts that differ. And we know what those gifts are. Let love be without dissimulation. And you know what that means. Favoritism. They couldn't tell Judas Iscariot was the one he was talking about. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectionate. Filio. One toward another with brotherly agape. In honor. Preferring one another. The faces of the caravan were toward one another and toward the mercy seat. That's living the atonement. It is completely arrogant to appreciate all that Yahweh has done for us in the provision of his sins in not with dealing with us according to our sin and then dealing harshly with our brethren. Be of the same mind one toward another. 
Mind not high things. You condescend the men of low estates and don't be wise in your own conceit, which is how I believe we were as a group 20 some years ago. Romans 14. Again, I was at the helm. But why dost thou judgest thy brother? You want to judge something? You judge this. You make sure you don't put a stumbling block in front of your brother. You make sure you edify one another. Don't do something that will trip him up. Don't trip him up in the world. Edify him in the truth. That's love. That's love. 1 Corinthians 12. Those members of the body we think are less honorable. God has tempered the body together as he sees fit. So that there are no schisms in the body. Hmm. But that members should have the same care, one for another. He tempered the body together. Some of that, some of those members of the body, we think, are not so comely. He tempered it together as he sees fit. That was the other rebuke we received the this elder couple. So you're going to just have so-called doctrinal strength in one ecclesia? And not do what Christ and the apostles did and help your brethren elsewhere. Now that one burned pretty well too. Galatians 5. For brethren, you've been called unto liberty. What is the context of this? Only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Is it an occasion of the flesh not to serve your brethren? Oh, yes, it is, brothers and sisters. Absolutely. All the law is fulfilled in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. It is so clear, it needs little commentary. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts, those characteristics. And if we live in the spirit, we need to walk in the spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a sin, word fault is not again, it's pretty weak in the King James. Ye which are spiritual. This is not the Christian humanism that comes from the world. This is not the humanistic ideas that come inside the body of the Christadelphian community. Ye that are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Considering meekness. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted, bear ye one another's burdens. It's not an aggressive spirit, brothers and sisters. Those that are spiritual will learn its meekness. Because, of course, Timothy says they only oppose themselves. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called with all lowliness and meekness. See the character of the Messiah being developed in the care of him, brothers and sisters, before we get to Ezekiel. 
before we get the militant chariots of the caravan going forth from Sinai to submit the nations. They first have been approved and changed ones in Sinai because they developed the character of the mercy seat and the character of Christ. Lowliness, meekness, humility, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, laboring to keep the unity of the spirit. This is not the humanism of just loving your neighbor like the world. Let all bitterness, wrath, all the evil speaking disappear, brothers and sisters. Be kind one to another. The repetition of this phrase in scripture, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. The whole purpose of forgiving someone else is for our character above anything else. You're acquitted. You wash your hands. You shake the dust. You've done what you can. That's why in the spirit of meekness, you even instruct those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, would give them a spirit of repentance. You know, that's a quotation from Timothy. You don't have to be harsh with your language. I've said my piece. You're wrong. You're scripturally wrong. I've said my piece. Put on, therefore, is the elect of God, holy, beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. Notice again the context. As Christ forgave you, do the same. You haven't been called as one person. You've been called in a body. And be thankful. Be thankful that you have opportunity to manifest the principles of the mercy seat so that you understand the atonement in living principle through exercising it towards one another. Rejoice in the fact when you're given that opportunity, brothers and sisters. Now, God himself, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ direct you. The Lord make you increase and abound in love toward one another to the end that you'll be unblameable and holy before God the Father. The development of love and the increase of it has got to go on and grow. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I write unto you. You yourselves are taught of God. It's a divine teaching. It's not the humanism of the world to love one another. You've been taught by the principles of the mercy seat how it's to be done. Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, be mindful of the divine host, brothers and sisters, to observe these things without preferring one before another. All without partiality, brothers and sisters. Exhort one another. Warn, the word exhort does not just mean encourage. Check it. Do a study in it. It does mean warn. That's part of love, brothers and sisters. Paul says that, especially in his second epistle to the Corinthians. This is done in love. I rebuke you, but it's done in love. This is not hatred. So many that he loves, he chasteneth. You'll find that language in the apocalypse, Christ towards the ecclesias. Of course, it's taken out of Proverbs. And as you know, Hebrews chapter 12. 
Love is not just saying, oh, everything's okay. The mercy seat acknowledged law. It did acknowledge law. You spank your children. You rebuke them. You tell them there is law. There is penalty for disobedience to law. Proverbs tells us that is born out of love, not tolerance. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. And don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Why? After is the manner of some, but exhort one another. Why would you put the phraseology in the cherubim as coming together as an ecclesia? It's how we learn by practical application the process of the atonement. Speak not evil one of another. It's going to be Judas Iscariot for three and a half years. Watch him, watch him. See what he does here? Christ didn't do that. They didn't know who it was, brothers and sisters. There was no partiality. He didn't show favoritism. There was no cold shoulder to a Judas Iscariot. They didn't know. In fact, they were circumspect and said, who is it? Is it I? Is it I? They all knew they had the stuff to do with it. So one law, one that judges the law. Grudge not one against another, lest we be condemned, brothers and sisters. Confess your faults again, sins, one toward another. Pray for one another. Notice what it says, the bottom quote in James 5 that ye may be healed, not them. You pray for them that you would be healed. Not you, plural, ye. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. He's talking about the prayer, the one that prays for another. The one that's giving of himself towards another. He's talking about Elijah who prayed. Over Israel. It's about us, brothers and sisters. It's about us. That's what the demonstration of brotherly love is about. It's about you and I, not even so much them. And by the way, in the Greek, that's in the middle voice. You know there's active and passive, like we have in the English language. What is you do for someone else or what someone else does for you? What you do for someone else, what someone else does for you. The middle voice is what one does for oneself. That ye may be healed. It's for your benefit to exercise the principles of the cherubim. Seeing you've purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned, genuine love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently. Have compassion one of another. Perpetual phrase. Again, this is why we recommend, brothers and sisters, the King James. It's the consistency of the language, because it does follow a lot of the consistency of the Old Testament language, where other modern translations do not. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, be lowliness of mind, be meek, be kind, be long-suffering. All the characters of Christ. All those characters in Psalm 103 that are expressive of Yahweh and how he has not dealt with us according to our sins. Use hospitality one toward another. This does not mean socializing in the flesh. Hospitality is meant and is born out of love. It means doing without grudging. As every man has received a gift, 
minister the same one toward another, as we were told by this elder couple. Do it on behalf of others. First Peter 5 and 5, younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. It may take some pairing off of some of your pride, but be subject one toward another and be clothed with humility. Admit they know more and are wiser. It's part of the cherubic figure and character born out of the mercy seat. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. And we don't know the truth. It's not what he says. He's not talking about academics, brothers and sisters. We do not. It means we don't practice the truth. If we walk in light as he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Then the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, will cleanse us from all sin. Then. Then it will. All the commandments we talked about before. I want to move on to some other scriptures in the last 10 minutes. Be like-minded, having the same love. Esteem one another better than ourselves. Look not every man to his own things, but the concern of others. Christ washed the feet of his brethren on the night he was betrayed by them, and he was going to be taken and to be put to death by crucifixion, of which they might benefit thereby. He washed their feet. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is me, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and your self-sacrificial love of every one of you all toward each other abounds. Notice how the doctrine of brotherly love is about developing our character. The two great commandments are about this, brothers and sisters. And the two com- the, the, the law was written on two tables of stone, as you well know. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first had the obligation to Yahweh. The second had the obligation towards your brethren. Neither of them had what we call in the United States of America, the bill of rights, your rights. You have a right to do something. None of them had that. It was your obligation to Yahweh and your obligation to your brethren. None of it had to do with your rights. It's fulfilling the royal law, brothers and sisters. And I, sorry, I have to pass this by because I want to get on to this point. Remember by what material the mercy seat and the caravan were formed out of the two ends of the mercy seat. Gold. And we've talked about this at length, brethren and sisters. How is that gold formed? Absolutely. Absolutely, it will develop our character to exercise this principle of divine love as was exhibited on our behalf for our benefit through the mercy seat of Christ. You do that same thing and you will have to eat humility. You will have to be long suffering. You will have to be tender hearted. You will have to be compassionate. You will have to be esteeming others better than yourself. You will be have to continually looking on the care of others instead of yourself. The fire of producing gold will require it. This is not what is put forth in the humanistic Christian world and too often in the brotherhood. 
This is love of the brethren. It's the fashioning of the two cherubim, Jew and Gentile. And both were humbled in that process, as we well know. As the Gentile for the Jerusalem poor fund had to look to the Jew to whom the oracles of God were given and had to support him because we benefited spiritually by them. And the Jew had to be humbled to look to the Gentile and say, you know what? We missed it. And now the light has gone to those people who weren't even a people before. And they weren't even people that sought him as the prophets say. And of course, it's quoted in the New Testament. They weren't even the people of God. And now they are. It is mo- meant to bring most, both to the stage of hu- humility. Buy of me gold, tried in the fire. When I'm tried, I will come forth as pure gold. And you know what? The way to avoid that is to misrepresent the doctrine of brotherly love. Hereby perceive we the love of God, this exercising of the love of the brethren. And hereby is the love of God perfected. Here's the expositor. The grace of God revealed through Christ created a debt. That's what that word means. We ought to love the brethren. (coughs) Excuse me. A debt of love owing by recipients. That's us, the mercy seat. That can only be repaid by them extending unmerited love towards others. This is a grammatical point of the long dash, so to speak, by Brother Percy Mansfield. An extremely difficult thing to do. But we will readily receive it of Messiah on our behalf. We say that we love him and we don't. We're liars. To profess that love and to manifest hate is to call God a liar. Again, the expositor. To claim to love God and manifest hate towards one, one, one's brother is to live a lie. That brother is God's son. Love is not just an emotion. It is not just an idea. It's the outworking of an intellect that sees the need of extending to others a service calculated to extend to them the greatest good. It's an intellect that knows the atonement and to know to live it, it has got to be lived out towards others. You notice the words, very wise words, of Brother Mansfield put together there, brothers and sisters. Again, the washing of the feet of Jesus Christ and the caravan language. And what happened, brothers and sisters? As I have loved you, love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. Verily, verily, one of you shall betray me, it says in this episode. And what does it say of the disciples? When he said, one of you will betray me. They looked one on another. Downing of whom he spake. We can look to one another's brothers and sisters. And we know what we are. And a sinless man died on our behalf for our benefit. And we can't tolerate any sin from one another. And yet when the accusation comes down, we look toward one another. Is it I? And we have no patience and no tolerance for the failures of others. Hereby will all men know that you are my disciples 
And when you do this, my joy will remain in you that your joy might be full. In John 13, it says, happy are ye if you lay down your life for the brethren. I could tell you what was missing in that little ecclesia I belong to. Joy and happiness, which comes through sacrifice for your brethren. Without a doubt, brothers and sisters, our personal application of the atonement is going to be a deciding factor of whether we will receive mercy or not. We pray for it. Forgive us according as we forgive our debtors. If you forgive men, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you do not, there's none for you. And I can assure you, brothers and sisters, because it's a doctrinal thing, your ability to exercise this principle will be placed in your hands at some point in the truth. I promise you, this aspect of the atonement will be placed in your hands at some point in the truth. Whether you understand the atonement or whether you do not, and whether you're cold and hard and have no joy and happiness, or whether you understand that you will be forgiven and you will have your sin, your trespasses forgiven according as you forgive one another, knowing that it's been done for Christ's sake. Give all diligence. Why? Why do we have to add to this knowledge brotherly charity? so that you're not barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He that lacks these things cannot see afar off, and he's forgotten he was purged from his old sins. Isn't that remarkable? If we fail to develop all these characteristics of knowledge, breeding, temperance, and patience, and godliness, and brotherly sacrifice, there is such a thing as knowledge that is not fruitful, brothers and sisters. There is such a thing as knowledge that forgets that we've been purged from our own sins. There is such a thing of just academics in the truth. I know it. I've lived it. Those who rightly comprehend God's love will gladly demonstrate the same. And it's very important, brothers and sisters, because remember Romans 5. When we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would dare die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And not only so, but we also joy in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom now we have received the atonement. Do we have that same sort of provision for others? And brothers and sisters, we're at our time. I please ask that you will permit five more minutes. You'll remember this parable regarding the atonement of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king. One's brought to him that owns owes. 10,000 talents. Have patience with me. He falls on his face. I will repay thee all. 
The Lord of that servant is moved with compassion and forgave him his whole debt. But the same servant, forgiven of a certain king and a master, finds his fellow servant, not a king, not a master, a fellow servant, and he only owes a hundred pence, not 10,000, which, by the way, happens to be the number of the redeemed. 10,000 saints. Isn't that interesting? He only owes 100 pence. And he grabs hold of him. And he has him with no mercy. You repay everything that you have. And the master says, thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all I debt because thou desirest. And you would have compassion on a fellow servant. So what's going to be happening? Cast into prison until you repay the absolute othermost of that. If we do not want to be held accountable for our sins, we at least will demonstrate from our heart, genuinely, forgiveness of our brethren, brothers and sisters. Everyone will do that if he understands the atonement and what's been done on his own behalf. And these notes will be sent out. You can look at them. I want to conclude with this. Quote from Brother Roberts. You, of course, of course, know where it comes from. I cannot forgive an offender until he seeks forgiveness. Ah, the process of the mercy seat is, is you have to acknowledge law to find forgiveness, and you have to confess it. Until my brother comes groveling before me, if he admits he was wrong, I'm not going to extend mercy. There can be no doubt, picking up the quote from Brother Roberts, that acknowledgement is the natural and prescribed condition of forgiveness in all, on all cases of a questionable personal injury in word or deed. You know he's basing that on the scriptures. But in the conclusions of human intercourse in the present state of weakness, he's referring to the law of sins of ignorance. There arise hundreds of cases in which it is impossible to apply this law in any strict manner. First, because it usually happens there are faults on both sides. Is that not true? And second, because it is nearly as often happens that where one side may be clean-handed enough, that are, there are times like that, the other side of the offending side, not through any intention or desire to injury, but through a wrong understanding of things, unintentionally offends you. In such cases, no wise man would insist on unconditional surrender implied in the request of forgiveness. Even in a clear sense, he's too conscious of his own shortcomings, the faces towards the mercy seat and his brethren, to take an arrogant attitude. We are commanded to forgive if confession is made. For this was the point in question when Jesus spoke in Matthew 18. We are not forbidden to forgive in the absence of confession. We are at liberty for, to forgive if we like, certainly. Jesus gave us the example. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Paul said, I pray God that it may be not laid to their charge. Stephen also the same thing. All this without confession on the part of the offenders. Some brethren want you to confess and grovel at every wrong thing that you've done. Is that the focus of the Bible? Brothers and sisters, I'm pausing from the quote now. 
You read all the things that are mentioned, the things that exclude people from the kingdom of God. Is that what the Bible is filled with? Do we read in detail about extortioners and drunkenness and thefts? And we do not. God is not interested in detailing all the finite details of someone's sin. And we know what covering of sin is. It's someone that doesn't mention it. Who cares? What's the point of repeating it? That's an unfaithful brother, says the Proverbs. We're too dark-minded to know their, their need for forgiveness. That's what he says. All this without confession on the part of the offenders because they were too dark-minded to know their own need for forgiveness. The man who applies the rule of confession before forgiveness too strictly is in danger of having the same measure applied himself. I've seen this with my own eyes, a younger couple who weren't even right, demanding of an elder couple who weren't even right, demanding it. We can't forgive unless they admit it. Number one, they weren't even wrong. So Christ says, and how then? We cannot be saved if we are too dim-eyed to know all our sins. And if those only are forgiven that we see and admit, the unforgiven malice must sink us into perdition. Another point the offended brother should consider is whether his state is due to wounded pride or whether he violated righteousness. You offend God all day long. I'm not continuing in the quote. You offend God all day long, and brethren will tolerate that. You wound them personally, and boy, they'll make you feel it. That's exactly what he's saying. It really has to do with wounded pride and not violating God's righteousness. If he is an expert, I'm picking up the quote, in self-examination, he will probably find it is the former three times out of four at least. For he discovers that other offenses against the law of God do not hurt him at all. They don't care if he offends God, if they don't touch him. Thank you, brethren. God willing, next class will specifically be on the subject matter of the atonement.